0: Thank you for joining me and praying with her.
1: By the way, we do
0: that for you as well and uh, others. So if you have prayer requests that you'd like, please let us know. We like to take time and publicly pray for one another. We're in a series in the book of Romans last week. I hear, an, I hear an echo back there. I don't know if it's coming my way or your way, but if it's annoying you as bad as it is me, then I don't want that to happen. Nevertheless, we're in a series on the book of Romans And this morning as we think about doubtful things, I want to remind you that last week we introduced this issue of gray areas. Now what does that mean? That means things in life that you and I face that scripture doesn't say this is right or this is wrong. But as a community of believers, when we come together, we all have differences, we all have likes, some things that I may approve that you don't, some things you may approve that I don't that we don't have text that says, thou shalt not do this, or thou shalt do this. So what do you do in those areas as you intermingle with each other? Do you judge? Well, last week, that's what we learned, that it's unwise to judge another person based on a gray area. Instead, there are other ways you're supposed to live. So if someone's conscience is defiled and they think it's wrong to do this, uh, And you had this quarrel back. It's not wise to judge one another. The weak versus the strong or the strong versus the weak. And Paul gave the reason because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, by the way, I told you I would mention the judgment seat. And so I will. Paul mentions it three times by name. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to the context the Corinthian believers were fighting over which, one, which man they liked the best in ministry. And Paul told them that was foolish, and it would also cause them to lose reward. In Romans chapter 14, Paul talks about judging one another. For those believers who judge because of gray areas and they condemn, Paul says, you know what? One day that could cost you some rewards. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul puts it in a context that's very interesting, and I don't have time to fully develop it, but they were judging Paul. And he reminded them that one day they would have to stand because they were allowing things in their life that weren't pleasing to God. There are all kinds of other places that reference that, but the bottom line is, is every believer in Jesus one day will give an account for ourselves before God, how we treat other people and how we handle these gray areas in our life. Now, if I were to point you to a verse this morning to springboard into this passage, I would remind you of Romans chapter 1, which is the theme of this gospel. Paul writes in verse 16, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek." Those two classes made up this church. The Jew and the Greek. This is where the doubtful Aries were coming in. Jews had very strict conscience over certain things. Greeks didn't. Now How do you get along with each other? Now, Notice what Paul writes here. He says, For in it, in the gospel, is the, is the power of God, is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, For faith, as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. What's Paul saying? He's saying that after you believe on Jesus for eternal life, something is expected from your life in a way of change. The same belief that you put in Jesus the moment you were saved and received eternal life, that faith should then change the way you live. And if it doesn't, Paul says there's a disconnect There's some kind of disjointment here. So now how do we deal with these stringent areas in our life? We're going to talk about part two of God's idea of unity and diversity. So just remember what this area addresses. And last week, I'm not going to repeat everything, but just remember it's unwise to judge another believer in gray areas. And here are the reasons. If you want to go back and watch that message, you can do that. However... In this particular passage, Paul writes in what is called a chiasm. Now you may say, that is a spiritual blessing. But let me explain to you what that means. He lays out in an X pattern, key is the Greek word, kai. That's what Jesus starts with, by the way, Christos. And when you look at this pattern, he emphasizes what is important. So in this section, notice this. Paul gives a warning about stumbling blocks in 13. Down in verse 21, he gives a warning about causing another believer to stumble. In verse 14, he says, Nothing is unclean in itself. I'm down to the other B; It implies that all things are clean in themselves. So what is the point of Paul's argument here? It is to warn the strong believer about destroying the person for who Christ died. And then Paul repeats that in case you forgot it. In verse 20a, he, he warns about tearing down the work of God, meaning another believer's life. So this is a serious issue here, serious matter. And Paul is going to put the burden, the weight, on the believer who has a strong conscience and who is able to practice and do things that perhaps someone else can't. So the burden is on the strong, not upon the weak. Now as we think about this, let me read these two center sections for you. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. And Paul will go on to say, I know everything is clean. But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. If they think it's wrong, you're better off to abstain than you are to rub it in and cause them to fall. Okay? So that's, that's the punch here. So some of you left last week thinking, oh, the pastor said you can just go do whatever and <laughs> hold up his hand. Just say, it's a gray area. I'm free to do whatever. No, that's, I told you you have to let me get through part two. What I'm saying is this. You may be free to do certain things, but oftentimes it's better not to do them for your testimony and for the life of another person. A man told me this one time. He said, remember this. What you practice in moderation, your children will take to excess. What you practice in moderation, your children may take to excess. So caution is always the number one when we think about the testimony of other people now five ways i'm going to give you in case you're wanting to take notes this morning flip your bulletin over or whatever you want to do five ways that we can demonstrate love toward one another in gray areas okay what are some principles that we can lay down to say this is what god's word says of how i'm supposed to respond when as a strong believer, I'm faced with a weak believer whose conscience is very tender in these matters. Well, first of all, do not intentionally be an offense to a timid believer. Maybe it's someone that's new in the faith, or maybe it's someone that's very sensitive. Do not intentionally be an offense to a timid believer. Notice what Paul says in Romans 14. Verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a trap. I'm going to read it that way. Don't put a stumbling block or a trap in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So here's the wisdom that God shares about what we are to do. What is an obstacle? Paul mentions this idea of an obstacle and then a trap. Well, an obstacle or a stumbling block, it could be translated, refers to an object that you just lay out in a path intentionally to cause somebody to trip. You know, kind of like my kids did to me one time. One time they were little fellas and we had a deck with some handrails and they decided to go get my fishing line out and they tied it around the handrails. And they went all the way around these rails. And I come out of the house, gallivanting, walking full stride on the deck, hit the invisible uh, fishing line, and guess what happened? Oh, they just laughed. Paul says, do not do this. Do not do this. Not only will you lose your reward, you might lose something else. But nevertheless, don't put a stumbling block or a trap a hindrance, some kind of tool that's used to catch an animal or a victim. Don't do that. So the point is that a stronger believer's actions could cause a weaker believer to stumble or even be tempted and fall. I mentioned this last week. I'll do it again because everybody likes to talk about the hot topic, alcohol. Does scripture say thou shalt not drink? No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, are you free to partake? Yes, you are. Now, hold on. Hold on. You will drink wine at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It won't be Pepsi either, by the way. You, you just read Scripture. You will one day. Not, not drunkenness. You see, here's the problem. Some people cannot disassociate alcohol with drunkenness. It is not wrong. However, listen. Remember what I told you last week? Some people have so bad of memories with alcohol. Sometimes it's better and most appropriate for you, definitely don't do it in front of them. And whatever you do, don't post it on social media. Not that you're not free to do that. But what happens, just think about it, what happens when you do that and you promote it? Perhaps you encourage some young kid to say, you know, that looks pretty cool. I think I should do that. And maybe they don't have any moderation in their life. You know, most people, by the way, are like a, Seesaw. There's no balance in life. It's either all this way or it's all that way. And sometimes addiction goes that way. It's like there is no moderation in addiction. You're either all in or you're all out. People have a very hard time balancing these issues in life. So, Paul says if we're applying this to the idea of alcohol, you are better off not to do it and don't even talk about it in front of them than you are to do it and say, I'm free, get over it. So I just share that as a word of caution. As your pastor, now how would you like to stand before Jesus one day and he say, now John, because of your freedom in Christ, you caused Jack never to come back to church again, and you also caused his son to be an alcoholic because of your liberty in Christ. And that's his life. I don't know about you. I don't want that. So Paul's warning here is be cautious in what you have your freedom and do not cause another person to stumble. All right, move on. Okay, I will. Number two, the second way, focus on eternals instead of externals. Ooh, that was pretty good. What are the eternals that the strong believer should focus on and not the externals? Well, Paul's going to say in verse 17, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating... In, oh, I'm sorry. This is an illustration on 1 Corinthians 9, what Paul says about not causing someone to struggle and to stumble. Let me get this before I go to the point. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So don't flaunt it. That's his point. Okay, now Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but notice these three characteristics, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So instead of you screaming about your liberty, and you're free to do this, and they need to get over it, Paul says, let me tell you something that's a whole lot better, something that's eternal, and that is, you as a strong believer focus on what is righteous. And then focus on what brings peace between you and the person, you and God, and them and God, and also focus on joy. Because the whole purpose of Christian living together is really these three things. We live a righteous life, we have peace among ourselves with one another, and because of Jesus, we're filled with joy. And so Paul says, instead of focusing on all the gray things and arguing over them, here's some eternal things that are a whole lot better. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Now notice what he says. Whoever thus serves Christ with righteousness, peace, and joy is acceptable to God and approved by men. So when you live this way, righteousness, peace, and joy, not only does God accept you, other people will too. Mmm. This is something you can actually put on your refrigerator and memorize. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So if you want to pursue something that's really freeing, Paul says, pursue something that brings peace and strengthens one another. Now remember, he's talking about gray areas here and mainly talking to the strong. So focus on eternals instead of externals. And then the third way that we are to live is we are to use our freedom to build others up, not to tear them down. Once again, are we free to do certain things? Yes, we are. But if it causes another person to stumble, should we do them? And the answer is no, we should not. Paul writes in verse 20, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine Or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Bottom line, you're better off to deny yourself than you are to cause another believer to stumble. I didn't say that. That's what God said. So don't destroy another believer over a gray area that you're free to do. You're better off not to do it. Paul says, the faith that you have... It's okay with between, you don't have any conviction. Okay, the faith that you have, you keep that between yourself and God. You want to do that? Do it between yourself and God. Now notice what he says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. In other words, I can do this, I have no conviction over it, but if I know this causes you to stumble, I'm not going to do it in front of you. I'll just deny myself. And I'll just keep that between me and God, and I can do whatever between me and God, and I won't do it in front of you. Notice what he goes on to say. But whoever has doubts, is this right? Should I really be doing this? I mean, Am I free to do this? Uh, well, you know, I don't know. Paul says, he who has doubts uh, is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. He has self-confliction, self-condemnation. And then Paul finishes that by saying, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So to the strong believer who has this freedom, Paul says, here's the balance scale. It's all right. Keep that between you and God as long as it has no conflict within you or on the outside inside. So very, very gray area here. But what is the point? If there's any doubt, you're probably better off not to. Okay? All right. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, another parallel passage, For though I am free from all, that is, all these things he can do, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, that would be a Jew, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. But I acted like it while I was around them. They wanted to keep the Sabbath. I went to church on Saturday. They didn't want to eat this. Paul says, you know what? I didn't do it. You know why I did that? Not because I'm under the law, but because I didn't want to offend them. And why did I do that? Because I wanted to speak about Jesus in their life, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, this would be a Greek or a Gentile, Paul said, I became as one outside the law. Not that I'm outside the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ, which is what? We are to love one another. That fulfills all the commandments. Love one another that I might win those outside the law. So if somebody wanted to have a sausage biscuit as a Greek, knowing that I was a Jew, Paul said, that would offend a Jew. I'd never do that. But I'd say, Lord, thank you for this delicious sausage biscuit. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'd eat it. And then I'd talk to them about Jesus. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, that is to those who have a conscience that doesn't even allow them to listen to Spirit FM, what did Paul say? To the weak, I became weak. If you can only listen to a certain kind of music, when I'm around you, brother, I'll listen to that kind of music. To the strong, what does he say? I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now I hear people say all the time, well, Paul was a hypocrite. No, he wasn't. Paul was a very conscious man about the lives of others and when he knew something would cause someone to stumble Paul was willing to deny himself the rights and the freedoms that he had in order to cause another person not to fall and that's what he's basically telling us as believers to do what is the fourth way that we are to live or to demonstrate love toward another person well quite frankly Paul summarizes it well. Live to please others, not yourself. Chapter 15, he's going to give an example here of Jesus. Notice what he says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So Christian, I'm talking to you now. Who must take the initiative to restore this unity. The, the weak person that can't listen to Spirit FM and can't do this and that, or the strong person who knows they're free to do this, but they voluntarily choose not to. Okay, let me be clear. Paul puts the burden of unity on the strong believer. If you will deny yourself, and you go and you help this weaker believer, then things will go out well. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Deny yourself, build your neighbor up. Now here's the example. Because Christ did not please himself. Our example, Jesus But as it is written, he's quoting here from Psalm 66, from David, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then Paul writes, David took the shame, by the way. He he said, the zeal of the Lord's house has eaten me up. He just saw all kinds of issues. He says, Jesus did the same for what was written in former days. People being put down and yet God lifting them up. This is the story of Scripture, by the way. Man subjects and God exalts. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. By reading back to what God did for them, He will do the same for us. And then he writes, May the God of endurance... Let me translate it this way. May the God of Daniel, may the God of Abraham, may the God of Isaac, may the God of Jacob, may the God of Joseph, and go all the way down through the hall of faith. May the God of endurance, who granted all of these people everything they needed in life to be able to not use their liberty as a way to cause someone to stumble, may God continue to give you strong ones this same endurance that you do not give in and cause another believer to fall. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That's God's goal, unity. At all cost, by the way, not at the cost of truth, but at the cost of personal pleasure that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what Constable writes here. People willingly alter their pace of walking while leading a small child by the hand so the child will not stumble. We've all done this, right? How much more should we be willing to alter our Christian walk for the benefit of a weaker brother or sister in Christ who we're leading? So let's just say there's a younger believer in your life. You kind of have to treat them like you do your kids. Watch. There's a sidewalk here. I'm going to slow down. Step. All right. Good. And then you walk. This is what we do with one another. When there's a weaker believer who has a very sensitive conscience about something, what do we do? Slow down. Slow down and realize you do not have to do this. Take it easy. Constable writes again, the example of Jesus, uh, Paul gives the example of Jesus. In him, we can see the difference between a people pleaser and a people lover. Mm. Sacrificing his own preference for the welfare of others did not make him acceptable to everyone, but it did make him acceptable to his father. By the way, what is the difference between a people-pleaser and a people-lover? When Jesus was confronted with legalists and they said, you you can't touch that food with unwashed hands, what did he do? Probably rubbed them in the dirt, got him a big handful. And he said, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles your body. Because you can eat a handful of dirt and wheat, it'll go through your intestines, everything's clean. But what defiles a person is what comes out of their heart. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he goes down the list. This, the spirit within us, that's what defiles a person, not not what goes in their mouth. So he told them and then he made them all just hush. He would not have any room for a legalist. By the way, what is a legalist? A legalist is a person who thinks keeping certain rules and standards makes them have more favor with God. That's a legalist. If I do A, B, C, and D, God loves me more and He loves me better. He accepts me more. He accepts me better. But the truth is, in Jesus Christ, God has fully accepted you just like you are. Just like you are. As a matter of fact, you can't do one thing to make God love you any better or love you any more. He can't. And so when you understand that, you realize rules do not get you closer to God. What they do is build a wall between you and God, making you think it's up to you to pretend to be righteous with God. Jesus had zero tolerance for that. However, he would be willing to go down and associate with prostitutes, with crooked business people, and others who some considered scum of the street. What would Jesus do? He would go and associate with them. And this is where the legalists would be like, just the mere fact of you being around those people makes you dirty. And what did Jesus say? Oh, no. No, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has little to forgive has little appreciation when he is forgiven. They knew what they needed and that's why they loved him and he loved them. But he didn't give one half of an inch for a legalist. Okay, I think that point's been across. The strong ought to take the initiative in resolving the tension between the strong and the weak. The strong need to be willing to limit their Christian liberty if by doing so they can reduce the problems of their brethren. The weak need knowledge, it's not wrong. And the strong need love. If it's wrong to you, I won't do it. Does that make sense? Okay. The fifth way that we can demonstrate love toward one another in a gray area is to learn to accept one another exactly as Jesus has accepted you. Remember last week I told you chapter 14 verse 1. We are to welcome one another. This is the bookend. What does Paul say? Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The word welcome literally can be translated invite into one's home and make them feel wanted to be there. Christ has invited you into the Father's home. And He wants you to feel like that is really where you belong because if you know Jesus is your Savior, that is where you belong. That's home. And Paul says, if, if Christ has done that for me and for you with all of my warts and wrinkles and short fallings and quirks, if He has accepted me and I know now that He has accepted you and is able to make you stand, should I not be willing to view you like Jesus does? And this is his saying, yes, yes I should. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, accepted in the beloved. Listen to what Paul writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, scratch my head, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love... He marked us off beforehand for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will that we do nothing about, to the praise of His glorious grace, which we learn more about every day, with which He has accepted us in the Beloved One. What does that mean? Ooh, I wish we were in class. I would have a good time. Basically, what he means is simply this. When you believed on Jesus for eternal life, you actually fit into a plan that you knew nothing about, that God had a purpose for you and had marked out beforehand. But to get down to the bottom line, he says, you are fulfilling the purpose of His will to, to the praise of His grace and His glory, in which He has welcomed you in the Beloved. That's Jesus, by the way, Beloved. So when you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you believed on Him for everlasting life, what happened to you? What happened? Can you take your finger and put on a verse and say, this is what happened to me? Well, you will after this morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians. I can tell by the way y'all are looking at me. First Corinthians chapter 1. Hurry, get there. Hurry, hurry, hurry. You'll never forget this verse, by the way. You'll never forget it. How am I accepted in the beloved? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Are y'all there? I hear pages rattling. I want you to see this. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus... Who became to us, the moment you believed on Him, He became to us wisdom from God. He became our righteousness. He became our sanctification. And He became our redemption. Now, I would challenge you to study this and figure out what that means. But let me tell you that what that means is when you accepted Jesus for everlasting life, along with that package of your faith, God made you the wisdom of Him, the righteousness of Him, the setting apart of Him. Because you're in Jesus, you're set apart with Him. God has a plan for you one day. All the way out through the Portals of eternity. He set you apart to be in Christ, His bride. And then Paul writes, He has made you the redemption. In Christ Jesus, you are those four huge, major things. You are accepted in Him. Now the big question becomes, are we willing to subject our liberty... Knowing that God has accepted us, are we willing to subject our liberty so that another believer doesn't fall? And I would hope the answer is yes, we are. Constable, again, he was so good in this area, I quoted him almost the whole message. Since God loves His Son, believers who are in Christ can rejoice that we too are the objects of God's love. You are in the beloved. That makes you fully righteous. You have the full wisdom of God in the person of Jesus. You have the plan of God. You have it all in Jesus. There's nothing that you're lacking. You have it all. We just haven't seen all that revealed yet, but one day we will. And listen to me. In Christ Jesus, God loves you as much as He loves His Son, Jesus. Now you let that sink in. He loves you as much as He does His Son, Jesus. That's pretty powerful. So here's my question to you this morning. Has there ever been a point and a time in your life that without the shadow of a doubt, you know for certain that you have put your belief, your faith, your trust in the person of Jesus Christ and the promise that He gives you of everlasting life. Have you ever done that? Jesus says, He who believes on me uh, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Have you ever put your faith and your trust in His free gift of eternal life for you And if you have done that, you are accepted in the Beloved. You do not have to drag your feet through ten miles of glass. You do not have to cut your fingers and slash your body with a whip to tell God how sorry you are for your sin. That does not save you, folks. Listen to me. You can cry about what a sinner you are until you're green. That doesn't give you everlasting life. You have to believe on Jesus that He died for your sin and He offers you a gift that you can never earn. That's eternal life. That's the gift. And the only way you can earn it is by faith receive it. Free. Free of charge. Come to the Savior, He says. Have you ever done that? If you have done that, you are accepted in the Beloved by the way, folks, that is the gospel that has the power of God to cause us to even deny ourselves over gray areas because of what he's done for us. Father, thank you this morning for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the strength and the power that it gives to us in our Christian life. May we, oh Father... Be conscious of our life. May we never cause another believer to stumble unnecessarily. May we be like our Savior and be a people lover, not a people pleaser. And I pray, O God, that You would give our congregation strength, unity, acceptance, and love for one another so that whoever looks at our church, they would have to be able to say one thing. They are a group of people who care for one another and care for others. That's the testimony that we want so that one day we can all gather and we can sing praise to your name. Thank you for Jesus who gives us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and has placed us in your family. And thank you for our Savior and for the gift of everlasting life that he gives to us simply because we put our faith and our trust in him. Thank you for Jesus. We lift up his name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.